Let us read from Acts 9 this morning. Then the church through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Well, if you're joining us for the first time today, we're moving through a series in Acts right now, taking it bit by bit. We alternate between series through books and topical series, and right now we are looking at kind of a mini-series within Acts, the conversion of Paul, the early church undergoing persecution, and kind of the big theme has been moving from pain to joy. Moving from pain to joy. Uh, you know, they say that prophets deal with the things they're going to preach and they work it out in their lives. And maybe I'm a little melodramatic to say this, but it feels that way sometimes in the week. I realize, oh, this journey from pain to joy that these people are going through, I'm living it out in my own life. I'm seeing it now. I'm seeing what that's like. And as I read this story about Peter moving among all of the churches, and he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. I thought about the paralytic man in the story, and I thought about how all of us in this room carry a wound. Everybody here is carrying a wound right now, a deep wound. And sometimes when this wound is recognized, poked, when it bleeds, maybe it's from a, a comment, just a criticism. Maybe it's from a story that you hear or a movie that you watch or a picture that you see of a loved one or a former loved one who you still love but can't be with. Maybe it's an interaction you have that wound opens up and suddenly your legs can't move. Suddenly we can't think straight and suddenly we can't see straight and we do strange things. We do things we later regret because the wound is there. And Christians are not immune to the wound. Here's a paralytic man in the assembly of the church, still paralyzed, eight years bedridden. In our church, we have small men's and women's groups. And in those groups, we share our hearts and our struggles. And as we journal through those, going through the year, going, man, when every time we hear from you and encourage you, we realize that I would say like 80% of the time, people are explaining symptoms of hurt, sin patterns that come from the same wound. We've been cut deep. It could be all kinds of things in our life. It could be a divorce, a miscarriage. It could be depression. It could have been family issues. And we carry that wound into the church, just like this paralyzed man. And it's hard. And part of why it's so hard is because we lose faith that our wounds can heal. We lose sight of growth because we're mostly around ourselves. And sometimes, sometimes we make agreements that wounds will never heal. 
And in those times, we can't get out of bed in the morning. In those times, we look at the other person, our loved one, or our spouse, or our dear friend, and we say, will this ever change? Maybe if we're a Christian, we believe in the second, we go, will God please come back? Right? And you think, I'm broken, I can't get out of this. It's inherited, maybe. It's in me. It's a permanent disability. You know, earlier in Jesus' ministry, there was a paralyzed man, and, they, and the Pharisees came around and they said he was born paralyzed. It's his parents' sin, which was a prevailing thought at that time, that culture. It's his parents' sin. He inherited There's literally nothing he can do about his wound. It's part of his identity. Here, it's an eight-year-old woman. Perhaps it's due to a trauma against the paralyzed man. Perhaps something was inflicted against him. Or perhaps he made a mistake. Perhaps he stepped in front of a carriage and a horse hit him and maimed him. Perhaps it was his own fault. But either way, the wound is there, and that wound can fill him with anger. It can fill him with shame, with guilt, and it leaves a permanent mark, it would seem. And then what happens with that wound? When you sit with that wound, when you think those thoughts and you listen to those voices, what happens? The wound becomes a companion. Pretty soon our wounds become our companions. They become the voices we listen to. And they're not just a companion, but they start to become a guide. Sometimes they're an unwanted or persistent informant to us. A voice that becomes at times more true than the other voices around us. And at this point, when we realize that we are motivated, moved by, steered by the wound, the wound has become our identity. And we begin to identify, that's me. I read about this person in the street, I'm that. I am broken in that way. Whatever it may be. And we begin to identify with that wound. What's your wound? What is the voice that's repeating in your head that says you're broken? Have you ever thought about the source of it? Have you ever thought about when it began, where it came from? Have you ever sat down and done that inner work? Have you ever realized that that wound can become circular? That that's one of the devil's greatest tools just to trap us in a circular voice of that wound. And it actually becomes, I think, very much like what hell is like, right? This forever cycle of one thing telling you, this is what drives people to suicide. This is what drives people to addiction. This is what drives people to seek power over others. It's what drives us to anger and rage and to inflict pain and to just get it out. Anyone here in here a Paul Simon fan? Come on, we gotta have at least one Paul Simon fan. Okay, great, good. You're in good company. Uh, recognize this song. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade. And he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down and cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame. I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains. Where does Peter find the paralytic? Fighting. This paralytic is fighting. He's fighting for hope. He's in the company of believers. He's seeking wholeness in his life. He's a member of the church. He has companions. Peter comes to the church and they show him this man, this wounded man who is cared for but broken because of something he can never change. And he fears it's his identity. How will he move forward back? How will the fighter remain? Last night, my wife shared with me a story about a friend of ours from high school. Hadn't heard about her since high school. Many, many, many years have gone by, but I recognized her as soon as I saw the photo. And I looked at the photo and I said, what's that? It was a black hand. Beautiful shot, black hand right off the edge, robot limb. And she goes, I'm so impressed. She hasn't had a picture 
with the hand in the shot for years, even though she's had the operation. This is the first time she's revealed her new hand. See, the hand had been destroyed in an ATV accident. The hand had been taken off, removed, and she couldn't accept it. Something in there, that wound was so deep, that barrier, that, that it had just, just stripped her identity in half. And she was one thing to the world. She couldn't reveal all of it. But the fighter remained in her. All of that time where those photos were just the one arm and the one hand, all of that time she was fighting. All of that time she was seeking healing. And here, the beauty of seeing you are still a whole person. You're whole. In fact, now you're truly finding wholeness in self-acceptance, in realizing that you are who God made you to be. He knew that this would happen, as strange as that sounds. And it is part of your story. It's actually your gift to the world. How do we get to that point of showing that our wounds are healed? How do we get to that point of revealing the healing process? Because I would be willing to bet you that she's not fully healed inside. Every time that hand touches her loved one, her child, every time she goes in for a hug, I'm sure there's a reminder of the wound. This is an ongoing fight from pain to joy. But the beauty is that in Acts, we found over and over and chapter by chapter as we move through that they are on this journey together. As we are. In fact, I'm more and more looking at this, I realize this should be one of the most distinctive marks of all churchgoers. We say we're sinners saved by grace, but that term is beginning to have no meaning, right? It's couched in religious language. We don't really think about what it means. What if we said we're broken people traveling together toward the promise of wholeness? That's what the church is. We're all broken people traveling together. But we have a sure promise of wholeness. And what does that promise emanate from? Where does that promise come from that the church embodies? It is actually God, the Trinity community, three in one, right? We talk about three in one. The church manifests that, the community God. God, we think of God, we think, oh, he's you know, the great, the big man upstairs, the guy with the white beard. He's always a dude, and he's always like really big and powerful. And he usually resembles something about our dad that we don't really like, if we're really honest. Do you ever think of God as a loving community that pervades all existence? Now the church suddenly makes so much more sense. We're simply a reflection of that triune goodness. A man on his own really has nothing to offer. It's the community. And in that community, we see each person's unique soul and voice, as we saw this morning, as I heard all of you singing, was just filled to the brim. Everyone brings their own wisdom or perspective to give to the body and the family of the church. And they come with their own scars and their own healing, broken, traveling together to care for each other. So when Peter comes to Aeneas, we think of Peter and we think, ah, oh, guy's got everything straight, does it all right, leaving the church, right? And Acts Peter seems like a stoic, just like John Wayne, just awesome. God can do anything. Never wrong, you would think. But that's such a shallow reading of Peter. Right? That's not conscious of both the prologue to Peter and what's going to come next. What's his prologue? What's Peter's just compelling story? Probably some of us can really identify with Peter, right? Peter's the one who was close to Christ and denied him three times. That's the moment where he needed him the most. At the moment where Peter was supposed to stand up as a man and be brave and courageous, he bailed. There's not a person in this room who can't identify with him. So Peter knows what redemption is because what happens? Over fish at breakfast on the beach, Jesus looks at him and he says, Do you love? Do you love? Do you really love? Now go. 
Now go, your sins are forgiven. Feed my lambs. So Peter's coming with this healing from this brokenness, working out, I'm sure, still his healing, still his worthiness. And he comes to Aeneas and he sees a man who he knows is not permanently broken because he knows the healing power of Jesus. He sees the potential wholeness in a paralyzed man. And what does he say to him in verse 34? He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. That's that's an empirical statement. There There is no clause there. There is no condition there. I can look at each one of you in the eyes and say with assurance from Scripture, Jesus Christ heals you. Do you believe it? Peter does not say, I heal you. Peter does not say, my work's going to heal you. But I am here to announce that Jesus Christ surely heals you. And if it's real healing, if it's true healing, it's because the word made flesh, what the Greeks called the logos, which just means the order behind all existence, the thing that makes chaos order, the things that make plants grow like they do, the things that make our body knit together the way they do, all of the order way down to the microscopic, up to the cosmic, the order behind all things wants to restore the order of your broken body from pain and the order of your righteous mind from depression and chaos. And he promises to do it. He promises to heal you. So in this story, we see that when we meet Jesus and his followers, he and they will ask for Jesus to heal the wounds in us, like Peter. So the question is, this is the job of the church, isn't it? This is a story for us to live into, to ask for each other about their wounds and to listen tenderly. You have to hold wounds very tenderly. And to pray for Jesus' healing. My understanding of the scripture shows that Jesus heals people all over the place. We just simply don't credit him. He heals our bodies, and we credit it to medicine or a doctor, which is true. But that order, the logos behind it, is Jesus Christ healing you. We might credit it to a talented therapist, but the order, the righteous mind, Jesus Christ heals you. This text shows us that the true healing to life must come from that Trinity community of wholeness. I was talking to a former pastor this week who works with very wounded men, very wounded men. And he says, every day in my office, in this place, if you don't see miracles, it's not God's fault. What he means is, if you don't see miracles every day, you don't see miracles every day, you're not looking. Part of it is just how we see how we see what's going on around us. So Peter is not afraid to claim Jesus' healing for this man. And he's also not afraid, once it is happening, to proclaim it, that that healing is from Jesus. He didn't take credit. He gives credit where it is due. Do you believe it? See, we don't heal ourselves. We are involved in our healing, certainly, but we don't heal ourselves. We ask for healing. We must ask for healing. We invite it in, and then we do work. The fighter remains. We face shame. We face guilt. There is a running and a leaving and a returning and a fighting. But the change must come from outside. That's what the scripture tells us. That's what Christianity tells us, is that there is one who is stronger and greater and more powerful. All these songs that we opened up about God's power and greatness. And that he actually cares about you. Hardest thing to realize when you're in the throes of depression, right? You look around, he cares about everybody but me, right? I look around and he definitely cares for you. Even the person consoling me, I'm angry at you. 
because you're fine and I'm broken, right? That's, it's so twisted how we get. But what we need is we need a coach who knows us to help us out more in the darkest places. My wife and I are taking a marriage course because every marriage pretty much always needs help. Our marriage certainly needs help. And one of the exercises was called reflective listening. Listen, just, just listen, and then it's so infuriating. Here's what you have to do. You listen to what they say. Shemi was just like, that was already hard. Just, okay, I'm going to listen. And then I'm going to repeat back to you what you just said. So first of all, I'm like, can I even remember all that you just said? Second of all, can I, can I just repeat it back? Or am I going to end up like slipping in, you know, a little jab or a little inference about what you really, I think you really meant? But to just reflectively listen means that I have to actually begin to put myself into your shoes. The act of reflecting what you said back to you, I, I sort of become you, right? I, I sort of incarnate you for a moment and I, and I envy you and I say back to you what you're saying. And, I'm tr- and as I'm doing that, I'm going, okay, this is really hard, but clearly this is not an illegitimate feeling you actually feel this way. Okay? And, and I love you. And so I'm really trying to understand who you are. I'm trying to get in your shoes. Well, Jesus did that. Jesus became a body and lived in the shoes of humanity and lived out our limitations and felt our emotions and sought understanding, knowing deep intimacy. He knows what the mind is like. He knows what it is to be hungry and tired. He knows what it is to be exhausted and to be set against the forces of depravity all over the earth. And to be amidst of all of this joy, he knows that feeling too. All sorts of lives you can't live. Jesus lived one life. I mean, if you're anything like me, sometimes I look around and I go, oh, that's a nice life, but maybe I'll do that Oh, that they have it pretty good. Maybe I should get that job, right? Oh, that house is really nice. Wonder what they did. Hmm. Like I'm trying to live in so many different lives, thinking that it will make me whole. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus lived a whole life in one life, and it was not a pretty life in some ways. It's not a life most people would envy and want to step into. Believe even though we call ourselves Christians. Because he was set against the depravity of the earth. He was certainly a person of joy, amidst joy, who had to carry a cross. He was the son of a carpenter, not a musician. He was a rabbi, not a Caesar. He was a man, not a woman. He lived one life, and he had to accept what God had called him into. Remember, the will of the Father. And he even asked in his darkest moment, will you take this cup from me? So Jesus gets it. He gets pain. But the difference, I think, is that Jesus sees all of that in the context of eternity. That this life is not all there is. Sometimes when we get into our darkest moments, we go, I'm X number of years old. My life isn't the way I imagined it would be. And there's only one shot, right? And I've blown it. Terminal. No wonder we're upset. Jesus could live to the cross to his own death and go, this is not all there is. He lived in the context of eternity. We move on in the story from Aeneas to Tabitha. Verse 39, we see Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas or Tabitha made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to her dead body. And so Tabitha arrives. Now, Tabitha's not paralyzed. She's dead. She, good person. No reason to believe any fault, didn't make any mistakes that we know of that are the result of her problems. 
didn't have anything from birth or any sins of the parents or anything like that. There's no shame and guilt story that we know of in Tabitha to bring apart an illness. Bad things happen to good people. We know this to be true. Then she gets sick and she dies. And this part of the story tells us something really important. First of all, I think it legitimizes grief tremendously as part of healing. Grief is part of healing. All of these people are coming and showing Peter all of Tabitha's good works, right? They're saying, look, look at how good of a person they were. Think of like when you have a eulogy or a funeral. What you do is you bring in all of the goodness of that person as part of the grieving, as part of the remembering. And this is a good thing because it's a sign of intimacy lived. We do this because it's a sign, it's a symbol that we had a dear friend, that there was an intimacy, and that's something to be cherished, and it's good, and that this death was indeed a tragedy. And that's okay to say that. It's okay to tell God, this is tragic. And I think also that the story of Tabitha tells us something, too. We really think about it. They may not have said anything about Tabitha going through any woundedness, but we know everybody has a wound. I would be willing to bet because I know that some of the most generous people have some of the deepest scars. The Tabitha was a woman full of joy and giving because of the life that she was in. I'll be willing to bet. And I think this text honors everything about that. And it recalls another healing episode. And that's the episode where Jesus encounters Mary and Martha at the death of their brother Lazarus, right? This is very similar. And they come out to him and they're mourning and people are playing these funeral dirge music. And this was the custom of the time to really, really mourn and weep publicly. And in that text, remember it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus, who saw in the context of eternity and was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, still wept. He wept because of the beauty of the intimacy, about the real goodness of human feeling. So when Peter comes in here and he tells the women to go outside, this is not what it seems like on the first read. I thought, what a jerk, right? Get your women, get out of here. This is just going to raise her up and get out of here and go on to the next thing, right? Like, just give me a break. That is not what's going on. No, Peter is moved by their grief. But does this give us a clue to something? When Peter comes and he's compassionate in the manner of Jesus, and he says, wait outside. Here's where Peter takes a different approach, much like Jesus does, actually, when he goes up to Martha. And perhaps the text is telling us this, that the women had given themselves over to grief. They had given themselves over to grief, to the voices of grief, to the wound. But Peter, though moved by their lets the wound move him to pray. This is a really important key in the story for our own woundedness. Peter sees the grief, experiences the grief, maybe even weeps with the grief, for all we know. And he lets the wound move him into prayer. And in that prayer, the fighter from our story stands up to fight again. And you would think he stands up maybe with a coach, right? We're praying, so we're with Jesus or God or we got it. So maybe it's two on one. That sounds pretty good. It's four on one. We've got a trinity. Peter aligns himself with the trinity. You've got a boxing match with four people on one wound. You're going to win the match. You're going to win the match. It's a four on one battle against death. And he prays in solidarity with the promise of Christ to resurrect all of us, to redeem all of us from our sin. And he says, Jesus Christ heals you. 
Just like he said to him, yes, I'm sure he says something like that. And then he goes, Tabitha, arise. So this promise that he's clinging to in prayer allows Peter to hold the power to consume the pain, to bring that pain to Jesus and ask him to heal it. He can exist within the pain in solidarity without being completely swept away by it and taken over by it. And he lets it pass through to Jesus. And he says, I know I've got three people with me that can handle this. We're a community now. Even alone, I am a community now that can handle the pain, however long it takes. And I will ask Jesus Christ himself to heal it. And in prayer, Peter must do something he's learned all too well, which is he must humble himself before God. When it says he knelt down and prayed, kneeling is always an expression. It's a, it's a lived bodily expression of humility. He humbles himself before the will of God. And he says, as Jesus would say, God, not my will, but thy will be done. I heard this week, a wonderful preacher talk about this as a way of living, and I think it's so true. If we begin to form imagination not on what we can do, but on what God can do, we begin to have a holy imagination. If I can form an imagination not on what I can do, Peter doesn't come in thinking what he can do for this situation. Peter couldn't conduct a funeral, and it would be nice, and Tabitha would stay dead. If his imagination is on what he can do, he's lost. He's lost the power. His imagination is on what God can do. Peter, in other words, has big dreams for healing. And there's one third thing here when we smash these two stories together that's super important, which is that these stories show us the beauty of what we call the Imago Dei, okay? That everybody is created in the image of God. Aeneas, who knows? Happened to him. He made a big mistake. Tabitha, like angel. Both of them have horrible things that happen to them. Jesus Christ heals both of them. Jesus Christ can heal any type of person, whether full of good works or full of shame and guilt. He can heal us all. So what does the church do about this? What do we actually take away from this? Dallas Willard writes that people rarely become present when they are not heartily wanted. When we're not heartily wanted. So what can we do? To be, we can want people. To be wanted is to be called into wholeness. When you want a broken person still in your life, despite their brokenness, when you invite them in as an ambassador of Jesus into wholeness, you're doing the work of the church. And don't do it alone. Do it with wisdom. Do it with guidance. You might not be the person to invite that person into wholeness. That's why there's a community. Some people are our kryptonite. We can't, we can't do it. We need Jesus. We need the church. A lot of us get in really nasty codependent relationships because we think we're the one to heal them in the wholeness. No. This is a communal thing. The church does this. The church as a community should reflect wantedness for all people because they are made in the image of God. This brings us, of course, to Christ's death on the cross, reflective of all of this story. That it is for all of us paralyzed from our own foolishness, dying despite generosity, dying whatever way we die, from the sin that is going to be the death in this life, unless he comes before we die. But it is his cross that shows us that he has the power to resurrect death to life. That's the beautiful other side of the cross. When we see this, sometimes we only think death and pain. 
But this is a cross with Christ no longer on it. He's freed from the grave. He's resurrected to life. So imagine for a moment what God can do with your wound. Imagine what God can do with this church's wound. This church carries a collective wound. We're wounded. Every church is. And everyone in this room, whether you don't know Jesus, you're just kicking the tires, whether you know him well, can do something right now to heal. And that is to focus on the wholeness and pervasive sense of well-being and joy that is in you from being made in the reflection of God. That he promises to love you. And actually, if you release yourself into that, it's yours right now. I am love. You can say that with confidence. There is one always who loves you no matter how far away you are and helps you regardless. And he will, as you let go and as you welcome his love in, say, follow me. So, the question for all of us today as we wrap up. What in your life have you made an agreement that Jesus can't heal? What wound have you made an agreement? I mean, we just looked through a text, he heals. And yet, I'll walk out today, you'll walk out today. We'll realize there's a wound that we won't let him touch. We want, we want it somehow. For some reason, we want to hold on to that. Something about maybe being the victim to that gives us something. Something. If we don't have it, we don't know who we'll be anymore. Maybe we've given up on hope or trust or faith that he can do it. And when we have that agreement, I guarantee you, you will be coping with it in some way. Perhaps, as Megan would say in nursing language, maladaptively. <laughs> you will be coping. There are ways you're coping, and you don't even necessarily know what they are. It comes out in arguments. It comes out in frustration. It comes out in disappointment. It comes out when you don't find wholeness, whether that's success or companionship or love or reaching your goals or having the status. When you don't find wholeness, you will realize the wound and you will begin to cope. And Jesus says, the only one that can really help you is me. Cope with me. Come cope with me. But I say, as I said in this listening exercise, right? I'm listening and I'm listening to the reflection and I'm doing the reflective talk and I'm doing, if I really give myself over to everything you're saying, I'm going to give up something about myself into you that I hold dear. No, I have some non-negotiables. No, I have some things that I won't let go of. You can't have that pain. That's mine. Right? I won't release that. I won't talk openly about that. I won't let you hold that. But our non-negotiables with Jesus have to be held loosely. Because just as in a truly loving marriage, if you're handing them over, you can do so in faith that they will be handled tenderly and with mutual care. Yet they will not be given over and then they will not leave and abandon you. That's our big fear with our wounds, is that we will share them, they will be taken, ripped further, and the person will run. But with Jesus, we are in the space of mutual care. It is a marriage, and Jesus will heal you. Willard talks about four answers to the great questions of life. He says, what is reality? God and his kingdom. Who is blessed? Anyone who is alive in God's kingdom. That means anyone who has said yes to Jesus having authority over their life. Anyone who is abiding by his way. Who is a really good person, he says? Those who are pervaded with a God they love. Doesn't that feel like wholeness? For me to be truly, genuinely happy for someone else's success and growth? That's wholeness. For me to not feel any pain or jealousy or covetousness or Envy, that's true. Don't we want that? Don't we really, really want that? He says, enter the kingdom, receive the blessing. You will grow to be a person pervaded with agape love. How do you do it? 
how do you become a really good person? Apprentice yourself to Jesus. We've lost the art of apprenticeship in our culture. We're all leading ourselves. When we think it's the greatest thing of all time, self-determination, and most of us are utterly lost. Return to apprenticeship and apprentice yourself in Jesus. And some of us today need to hear this. He promises joy, and we're here coveting joy. And you can claim it right now. Claim your joy. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Part of claiming joy is just simply asking for it. So we had a meeting with our advisory board for this church this week, and they said, guys, can you please ask more? Ask us more. Ask other churches to help your church. They, they said a really good thing to us. They said, you're an orphan church, right? You need a parent church. You need a dad. You need a mom. Ask for help. And then I go, well, I got some non-negotiables. They might take them away from me, right? I like my autonomy. I like my wounds. Ask for help. Come on. You don't even know what's on the other side. And they said, if you model that, then your church will begin to be a church that asks for church. I'm asking you. Let's be a church that asks for things, for health and for growth, to ask Jesus what he imagines for our life. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do something a little different here. It's going to be a little bit vulnerable, and I know some of you are brand new, and I love that. So feel free to partner with each other or join a person in our church. We're going to pair off in groups of two or three to encourage you to find somebody you don't know. We're going to ask each other's names. I'm not expecting you to be totally intimate with each other, obviously. Some of you might just vent. Share a pain. Try it. Share something. It could just be from today. It could be from this week. It could just be right on the surface. Share a pain and just begin that process. And then ask the other person, will you pray for them? Share a pain and ask the other person, will you pray for them?